There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. Where nobody has any idea where these people are coming from. And we know they come from prisons. We know they come from mental institutions, insane asylums. We know they're terrorists. It's poisoning the blood of our country. Uh, it's so bad. And people are coming in with disease. Harsh treatment of immigrants, jailing his perceived enemies. Donald Trump is not hiding his iron-fisted authoritarian plans. Believe him. Meanwhile, the Biden coalition that stopped him the last time is showing signs of fracturing. Also tonight, call it the Clarence Thomas policy. The U.S. Supreme Court announces a new code of conduct, but the loopholes are big enough to drive a truck through. Plus, new reporting tonight on what lawyer Jenna Ellis shared with prosecutors in Trump's Georgia election interference case, now that she's cooperating, including that she was told, quote, the boss is not going to leave. And we begin tonight with a reminder. Donald Trump has told you who he is over and over again. So you should believe him. Because as frightening as the prospect of a second Trump term is, you don't have to wonder. He is telling us exactly what he plans to do. And that includes a reference to the Nazi playbook, as he did on Veterans Day, with Trump embracing the language of hate, using the words vermin twice to describe his perceived political enemies. First, in social me- a social media post on his fake Twitter and later repeated verbatim in a speech in New Hampshire... In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. In using the word vermin to refer to the left, which is apparently more of a threat than Russia or North Korea, Trump was using the same word historically weaponized by authoritarian dictators to dehumanize their opponents. Historians and scholars were quick to point out two dictators specifically, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. Trump's words could just be rhetoric, since he has proven time and time again that he has no understanding of history, wouldn't care even if he did, and doesn't seem to know whether the current president is Joe Biden or Barack Obama, which he also demonstrated over the weekend. One might also note for historical purposes, Adolf Hitler was imprisoned for staging a coup a decade before becoming the German chancellor. And it was in prison where he wrote the first volume of Mein Kampf. In it, he wrote about the rats that poison our body politic. So you can understand why historians are treating Trump's words like the five alarm fire it is. In response to the entirely accurate critiques, the Trump campaign put out a fully unhinged, unapologetic statement, basically proving them right. Campaign spokesman Stephen Chung said, quote, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they are suffering from Trump. 
derangement syndrome, and their sad, miserable existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. Meanwhile, in another post on his fake Twitter today, Trump warned that special counsel Jack Smith and other Justice Department officials will wind up in a mental institution if he were reelected. The idea that people might wind up in mental institutions also might sound like a bit. If we didn't already know that in a second term, Trump is planning to go after anyone who opposes him. According to the Washington Post, Trump plans to gut the Department of Justice and fill it with sycophants who will go after his political enemies. And he's reportedly drafting plans to invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office to allow him to deploy the U.S. military against civil demonstrations. In fact, much of what Donald Trump wants in a second term is no secret at all. The Project 2025 collection of policy proposals to give him all sorts of dictatorial powers has been in the works for years now with the help of the Heritage Foundation. Axios reports on efforts to pre-screen the ideologies of thousands of potential Trump foot soldiers as part of that unprecedented operation to expand his power at every level of government, noting that hundreds of people are spending tens of millions of dollars to install a pre-vetted pro-Trump army of up to 54,000 loyalists across government to rip off the restraints imposed on the previous 46 presidents. Social media histories are already being plumbed, and if Trump were to win, thousands of Trump-first loyalists would be ready for legal, judicial, defense, regulatory, and domestic policy jobs. His inner circle plans to purge anyone viewed as hostile. Adding that, the people leading these efforts aren't figures like Rudy Giuliani. They're, they're, they're not ridiculous figures like Rudy Giuliani. They're smart, experienced people, many with very unconventional and elastic views of presidential power and traditional rule of law. One of the chief architects of Project 2025 is a former Trump advisor, Stephen Miller, the white nationalist Dracula behind draconian and cruel Trump immigration policies like the Muslim ban and separating immigrant children from their families and putting them in cages. That Stephen Miller has even more disgusting racist immigration plans for a second Trump term. The New York Times dug into those plans. They include preparing to round up undocumented people already in the United States on a vast scale and detain them in sprawling camps while they wait to be expelled. Adding that Trump plans to scour the country for unauthorized immigrants and deport people by the millions per year. To help expedite the deportation process, they're preparing an enormous expansion of a form of removal that does not require due process hearings. In a statement tonight, top advisors for the Trump campaign acknowledged reporting on Trump's second-term plans by calling them purely speculative and theoretical, even though some are designed by people close to the former president. And if you are inclined for one second not to take all of this seriously, just remember that this is exactly what Donald Trump did with the federal judiciary in 2016, with the help of his crony Leonard Leo and his gang over at the Federalist Society, with a ready-made list of people that he would nominate to the Supreme Court and to other courts months before a single vote was cast. And the biggest alarm is that the face of this clearly articulated monstrosity, Trump, is not just facing Joe Biden, but an increasingly fractured coalition of non-Trump options. As many as five people 
maybe six, could be on next November's ballot. So just remember, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Joining me now is Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and a scholar of authoritarianism at New York University, and David Pluff, former Obama campaign manager and White House senior advisor. Thank you both for being here, Ruth. Um, I want to start with you. Because the Project 2025 stuff is frightening to me um, as somebody who has followed politics since I was in high school and has done it as a journalist for nearly 20 years. I've never heard anything like it. It sounds like a roadmap to a Hitlerian or Putin or Orban-style government. How worried are you about the implementation, potentially, of such plans? I'm very worried, and um, I want to say that all of this goes together. Uh, the, the talking about people like vermin goes together with the plans for uh, instant, you know, uh, action in, to purge civil servants. It plans uh, reported elsewhere by the New York Times to find uh, lawyers who will be unethical uh, because. You know, uh, if you're trying to have an autocracy, you need corrupt and lawless people to be part of the government. Otherwise, you don't get anything done. You also need to convince uh, people to see violence differently. And Donald Trump's been doing that since 2015, trying to get Americans to see violence as patriotic uh, and, and necessary. And then you need to dehumanize your targets uh, through language that we saw, like their vermin and which Mussolini and Hitler used, uh, because you want people to get over any last aversion to either cooperating with violence or actually, um, you know, committing violence themselves against state enemies. You know, David Pluff, um, we know that Stephen Miller, who ironically is the grandson of Holocaust survivors, is fixated on remaking the racial composition of this country by deportation, mass deportation, and returning to a 1920s-era immigration policy that essentially will only let in white Europeans. Um, we know that Donald Trump still talks to Tucker Carlson, despite Tucker Carlson having said he despises him, and that they share a view that non-white immigrants have made the country dirty, have made the country unseemly, um, and that they need to return power um, essentially to white men. And they're very open about it. They're not, they don't hide it. And, and yet what you're seeing is this ideology trans being transmuted outside of just white conservative Republicans, um, into other ethnicities, into other ethnic groups who are seeing this as, you know what, this is a possibility. Donald Trump isn't losing support. He's gaining it with this open call to turn the United States essentially into a giant white ethno state. How is that possible? And what is the counter to it? Well, Joy, I guess I'd start where you started, which is, you know, the danger of giving him a redo, um, you know, would be one of the biggest mistakes in the history of the planet, in, in global history. Um, because I do think, you know, he won't be as successful probably as he'd like, but he's going to organize his government and an outside game here to try and be much more effective to accomplish that aim, which is to turn America into an autocracy where he rules and then Don Jr. rules and then Ivanka rules and basically white men, um, you know, have all the power in this country, maybe with the exception of Ivanka. So what I'd say, though, Joy, is I think most of the people that are going to side this election, People right now in polls who might say, you know, all things being equal, maybe I'd vote for Trump. People who are still undecided. 
you know, progressives and young people who haven't decided who to vote for, whether to vote. They don't know this is what he's going to do. So we we have to understand that that's what the campaign is for. <laughs> the campaign is to feed this because the percentage of Americans that would support, by the way, it's scary how high it is. Maybe 30%, maybe 35, but it's not 50. And you need to feed this to them each and every day so that you raise the stakes of this election. And then the important point you raised is you've got to make sure that voters understand there is only one way to save the country, and it is to vote for Joe Biden. Uh, And any vote to these third parties is a vote for Trump. Because Trump, I don't know, you know, I worry about these latest polls because he is at 49, 50, 51, higher than he's ever been. But I think that that'll look different in the spring. But he's not going to fall below like 45. So if if there's too many third party votes splintering, he's going to win. So that's what the campaign is for, is to make sure that all this stuff that we're spending all time seeing, which, again, is deeply, deeply unpopular. So this is not a guy, last thing I'll say, who's decided, you know what? I lost in 20. My party was awful in 18. We got our butt kicked in 22. We just had a bad election week. I need to change. He's doubling down on basically, uh, you know, destruction of this country. Uh, And we have to explain that and explain why that's important. I want to come back to that in just a second and the challenges in doing that. But Ruth, I want to come back to you because the thing is, I I think people have a kind of misrememory, a misremembering of the 1930s. The assumption was America rose up en masse to oppose Hitler, to oppose um, that kind of autocracy. That's not true. A lot of Americans had no empathy uh, for the Jewish people who were being persecuted there and actually wanted nothing to do with the war. Um, And many of them sided with him, um, including very prominent people like Henry Ford. We had a contingent in this country um, that was... uh, actively pursuing, potentially overthrowing our government, Rachel Maddow has taught us with her books uh, and with her podcast, that wanted to overthrow our government and give us a 1930s-style autocracy like Hitler's in the 30s. So we have a, a part of our country that's always been that way. And then I look at Florida, where Ron DeSantis has been able to essentially implement a, uh, an experiment in doing most of this, driving immigrants out to the point where he's hurting the economy. Uh, implementing book bans, implementing a lot of really weirdly 1930s policy and getting away with it because he had a party in Tallahassee that was willing to do whatever he wanted. If Trump comes back, he'll have that too. There won't be normie Republicans. They're all gone. How do we fight uh, against um, what Trump wants to do when all the Republicans who will be willing to stand up to him are gone? They've left Washington. They've left the party. Yeah, it's very difficult because the party it has become an autocratic entity and it 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 is relying on corruption and the, the autocratic playbook, lying, corruption and violence and threat uh, as a form of government. And the reason they don't care about the reason they don't care if they take positions that are unpopular is that they don't really plan uh, in the long run to depend on the popular will to depend on elections. The end game of an election denial is to convince Americans that elections are not necessary or the best way to choose their leaders. So that's, they plan on having a kind of electoral autocracy where you have elections, but they don't mean anything. So you get Tommy Tuberville saying, oh, we shouldn't have elections. You get Michael Flynn saying, maybe we won't have an election. This is all kind of psychological warfare, drip, drip, drip. And when you put it together with, you know, Trump uh, kind of marketing violence as something positive and, and all the other things going on. It's just, I think that civic education, which is what I've been trying to do since 2016, why I wrote my book, Strongman, 
is absolutely essential because, as you said, people uh, have a kind of amnesia. They don't remember that Mussolini was an enormous star. He, he had a syndicated column, Mussolini, courtesy of his patron, uh, Hearst, who was a right-wing, you know, billionaire or whatever. And he reached a, a thousand. He had, it went in a thousand newspapers for seven years, Mussolini. Uh, and, of course, we know that Hitler was very popular. So we can't, um, we, we can't forget this, and we need to come to terms with this strain of authoritarianism that is in our own country and how it can be activated and is being activated now. And, you know, David, it, you know, it isn't uh, us trying to insult Donald Trump by associating him with the 1930s. He doesn't. He, he associates himself. He, he doesn't feel it's an insult to, to compare him to Hitler. He apparently had the book by his bed, right, of his speeches. I mean, he, he's not against it. He said, you know, those people vote, too, when he's told, hey, you're hanging out with Nazis. He doesn't care. Uh, but the other piece of it that is analogous is the, econo is the economy piece, right? The economy on paper is good. But like the 1930s, there was very high inflation. There was very high dissatisfaction. You have a lot of young voters, a lot of voters of color on the Democratic side who are dissatisfied. The jobs picture does not impact them. They, yeah, they got a job. They, don't, they can't afford things. And so there's dissatisfaction. And then we bring in what's happening in Gaza, where there's a lot of anger at Biden. There's a sense that there's not that much difference between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to issues like violence against people in Palestine, in Gaza. And then you've got all these options, people who don't like pandemic restrictions. There's a Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for them. If you don't like what's happening in Gaza and Biden's stance of 100 percent support for whatever Israel wants, you've got Cornell West as an option. If you somehow have this dream that there can be this magical, weird, bipartisan utopia, you've got maybe Joe Manchin. You've got Jill Stein if you're just a contrarian. There might be that many people on the ballot. And it's worrisome to me because I don't see the cohesion on the Democratic side, the Biden side that I see on the Trump side. Does that worry you? Of course it does. I mean, Joe Biden can win this race, but the degree of difficulty uh, because of all the factors you just talked about is enormous. Um, and you really have very little margin for error. And, and Trump, you know, in 16, um, he won the presidency, winning 46.1% of the vote, including getting 46, 47 in some battleground states because you had Stein and Gary Johnson. And it was that third party factor. So it's a huge issue here. And I think at the end of the day, first, I'd say on the economy, I, I think that and, and I think the White House understands this, but Democrats have to understand, you know, I've learned this lesson the hard way. You can never tell a voter how they should feel about the economy. They'll tell you how they feel about the economy. And while the unemployment rate is low, I think people are never satisfied with wages, nor should they be. Uh, people have their paychecks been going uh, not as far as it was, certainly pre-pandemic. And these high rates are causing factors, maybe not for everybody, but enough people. Uh, and then you add the global uncertainty. So Biden's going to have a really tough time around the economy because Voters also kind of remember this rosy period pre-pandemic where even though Trump was largely profiting from the Barack Obama economy, you know, people remember it being quite strong. So you got to prosecute an economic argument here. But for all these other voters out there, the notion that we would become an autocracy, the notion that we would become basically a, a white power our country um, don't, is not supported. So you have to raise the stakes. But this is going to be like navigating a super treacherous obstacle course because of all the factors you talked about.
And then the question is whether abortion uh, is a strong enough deterrent and the, and the desire for gun reform, which are powerful issues for young voters, are going to be enough to move them in the direction of saving us from what Donald Trump would do to this country. It's scary stuff, uh, but it's important for us to put it on the table and talk about it. Uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, David Pluff, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, after a series of scandals involving right-wing justices, the Supreme Court is adopting a code of conduct. But it doesn't really prevent Clarence and company from continuing their corrupt ways. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Further proof that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Earlier today, the Supreme Court announced that for the first time in its 200-plus year history, it has adopted a code of ethics. Well, sort of. The 14-page document broadly lays out five canons of conduct on issues such as when justices should recuse themselves and what kind of outside activities they can engage in. However, it fails to mention exactly how it would be enforced or who would enforce it. This is a clear effort by the high court to short-circuit an increasing pressure campaign from Senate Democrats to impose a binding ethics code for Supreme Court justices especially after reports earlier this year from ProPublica that Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito did not disclose free trips they accepted from wealthy right-wing donors. That pressure was turned up last week when the Senate Judiciary Committee debated issuing subpoenas to one of those donors, Harlan Crow, as well as conservative legal activist Leonard Leo. Joining me now is Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. Ellie, how seriously should we take this Ethics code. Let me just read a little bit of it before I let you answer that. It says here, the absence of a code, however, has led in recent years to the misunderstanding that the justices of the court, unlike all other jurors in this country, regard themselves as unrestricted by any ethics rules. Your thoughts? Misunderstanding. So we were confused about whether or not Supreme Court justices can have their mother's houses paid for by wealthy Republican donors. Oh, well, thank you, John Roberts, for elucidating that, in fact, they can, because that's the real problem with this ethics code. There are no ethics involved in the code. There is nothing in this 14 pages of weak sauce that restrains people like Clarence Thomas from doing everything that Clarence Thomas did. Nothing about not taking gifts from wealthy donors or taking trips or taking free vacations or taking free houses. Nothing in there is unethical, according to the Supreme Court. So I would call this ethics reform toothless, but that's a bit of an insult to people who have dentures, right? Because that because it's weaker even than that. This ethics code is best understood as Only Clarence Thomas can decide whether or not Clarence Thomas violated Clarence Thomas's rules. 
right? It's like Ricky Henderson wrote this for himself. Um, and so with that as the setup, the idea that this weak sauce ethics rules, um, so-called ethics rules, there's no enforcement mechanism, as you pointed out. It's still up to the individual justices to decide whether or not they should recuse. There's no peer review. There's no independent third-party adjudication about any of these uh, potential ethics violations. So what is it for? And Joy, you've hit it exactly right. The, this has an audience of exactly one, Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin. Yeah. This is John Roberts NM's attempt to push Durbin off of his investigation, an investigation that, by the way, the Supreme Court justices are still refusing to show up um, and testify about. Right. It's to push him off their investigation and to give ranking uh, Republican member Lindsey Graham something else to scream cry about when he tries to justify <laughs> the unethical behavior of the Supreme Court. Let me let me read a little bit of it. This this is their code they're saying they're putting in place. A justice may accept reasonable compensation and reimbursement for expenses for permitted activities if the source of the payments does not give the appearance of influencing the justice's official duties or otherwise appear improper. Expense reimbursement should be limited to the actual reasonable estimated cost of travel, food, and lodging reasonably occurred by the justice where the appropriate for the action, but the justice's spouse or relative. Um, for some time, all justices have attempted to comply with the statute governing financial disclosure and the undersigned members of the court each individually reaffirm that commitment. The, the idea that they've attempted to comply with the compensation reimbursement piece seems laughable. But what do you make of that new? It's not really a rule. It's like a suggestion. Right. It's, it's Captain Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean, right? The code is more of a guideline, really, right? Like, that's <laughs> what we're talking about here. And this idea that they've attempted to comply, well, you done failed. You done failed at the compliance part. So what have you done to actually make sure that you will comply um, going forward? I've done the Google search. I've seen a lot of people do this on the Internet as well. The code says in 14 pages, uses the word justices should, the word should, 53 times. It uses the word justices shall, shall do something zero times, all right? Mm -hmm. So again, this this is not worth the paper it is printed on. It is like erecting a dam with a chain link fence. It's a giant waste of time for everybody. But there's also one more thing that I think is worth pointing out. It's, it's also incredibly permissive of the real kind of graft and corruption the Supreme Court likes to do, which is to appear at Leonard Leo's Federal Society events. Just last week at the Federal Society's annual gala, four of the conservatives showed up, um, and the feature speaker was Amy Coney Barrett. This ethics code literally proscribes exactly how Amy Coney Barrett is allowed to keep doing that by some legal mumbo jumbo redefining what a fundraiser is so that the Federal Society's annual gala doesn't count as a fundraiser according to these rules. They're useless. Dick Durbin should ignore them and press on with his investigation. And, and I will note for the audience that they're doing this while the Federalist Society is also writing up rules, I mean, writing up ideas for how Donald Trump could essentially rule us as a dictator. And one of the sort of guardrails against him becoming a dictator is supposed to be this exact same Supreme Court that Leonard Leo owns. Fabulous. Ellie Mistal, it's all working out just perfectly. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Up next, brand new reporting on what Trump lawyer turned cooperating witness Jenna Ellis told Georgia prosecutors. You don't want to miss that. We'll be right back.
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. As part of her plea deal last month in the Georgia election interference case, former Trump campaign lawyer Jenna Ellis had to tell prosecutors what she knew. ABC News has obtained portions of her videotaped interview with the Fulton County investigators. In it, she discloses a conversation that she had with top Trump aide Dan Scavino weeks after the 2020 election and following their Supreme Court loss, which essentially ended their ability to challenge the election results based on bogus fraud claims. According to Ellis, Scavino said Trump was never going to leave office. He said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump and everyone understood the boss. um, That's what we all called him. Um, He said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. And I said to him, well, it doesn't quite work that way, you realize. And he said, we don't care. Wow. Joining me now is Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. I will note in a statement to ABC News, Trump's lead counsel in the Fulton County case called the, quote, purported private conversation as described by Ellis absolutely meaningless. Do you consider it meaningless, Glenn? No, and it really doesn't matter if it was a private conversation or not. There is no sort of, you know, privacy exception to introducing at trial this kind of sharply incriminating information. I think the challenge, Joy, becomes who did Donald Trump say this to? And do prosecutors in Georgia or federally, Jack Smith, have this statement in admissible form? It's being attributed to Dan Scavino. Did Dan Scavino hear Donald Trump say it out of his own mouth? If so, it's a statement of a party opponent and it's admissible. But somebody saying Dan Scavino told me that the president said this, that that's hearsay. It's inadmissible. So it raises the question. I know it feels like a very long time ago that Dan Scavino and Mark Meadows were referred for criminal prosecution for contempt of Congress. And all of that just sort of died a quiet death. So could it be that perhaps somewhere along the way, Dan Scavino decided to cut his losses, cooperate with prosecutors, and tell the truth about what he knew about the crimes of Trump and others. That remains to be seen. But the natural question now is, where is Dan Scavino in all of this? And has he divulged this evidence to the prosecutors? And if he hasn't, would you expect a subpoena for him to drop now that this has dropped? Oh, it may very well be that there's a superseding indictment with his name on it so that he will be an indicted defendant. But we will see. Um, 
you know, a subpoena, we're not completely beyond the subpoena phase of these cases because prosecutors, even after they return initial indictments, can continue to use the grand jury, continue to use the subpoena power to investigate others who have not yet been charged. But it really does feel like both in Georgia and in D.C., at least with respect to the first Donald Trump criminal trial, we are in the shoot and moving toward trial. And the grand jury investigation piece and the opportunity to use subpoenas is sort of in the rearview mirror at this point. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about cameras in the courtroom. Donald Trump now wants them. Um, you know, Jack Smith's argue, uh, argument is the opposite, that it would just be a circus and Trump wants a circus. But what do you make of the fact that Trump has now joined, including uh, our own net, where NBC Universal is one of those uh, media entities that is petitioning for cameras in the courtroom? What is your view of the fact that now the defendant uh, in the Jack Smith um, federal interference case wants the cameras in? Joy, my view is he knows that uh, it is unlikely we're going to have cameras in the federal courtroom. I, frankly, would like to see cameras in the courtroom because I think we, the people who are the victims of count four, because Donald Trump tried to defraud us out of our voting rights, we have a right not to be excluded from the courtroom. That's the federal law. And we will de facto be excluded if we don't have cameras in the courtroom. All of that being said, I think Donald Trump has made the calculation that it's unlikely the federal system will bend and allow cameras in the courtroom. So he will forever scream, I wanted cameras in the courtroom. Nobody got to see what went on in the courtroom. Therefore, you know, what he's trying to do is attack the process and the people who populate the process. If you read the four and a half page pleading that was filed by Donald Trump and his lawyers, it may be the single most embarrassing and irresponsible court filing I ever saw in my 30 years as a prosecutor. It reads like a four-page Donald Trump 2 a.m. social media post. It does not read like a legal, legal pleading. And what he does, Joy, is he rails against the judge, against the prosecutors, and against President Biden. I think it's because he has a sense he's likely to lose on the evidence. So he has to try to undermine confidence in the process and in the institutions. So people, the public, are perhaps less likely to accept the result, which will almost undoubtedly be a guilty verdict, a conviction. So I think that's his play at this moment. Glenn Kirshner, always so valuable uh, to hear from you. Thank you very much, my friend. And uh, coming up, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is getting worse and calls for a ceasefire are growing. That is next. Israeli strikes continue to pound Gaza with hospitals full of children on the front line. The main hospital serving Gaza City is no longer functioning after three days without power. That's according to the World Health Organization, who also told BBC that Al-Shifa Hospital has lost the ability to carry out basic functions and has effectively turned into a morgue. The horrors emerging from Gaza are stoking outrage worldwide during hundreds of thousands of protesters who have been marching in solidarity with the Palestinians right up through this weekend. The call for a ceasefire is accelerating from London to Buenos Aires to Jakarta to right outside President Biden's Delaware home, a sign of the deep fracture over Gaza here in the U.S. Black Christian faith leaders are sounding the alarm as well, meeting with White House officials and members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Last week, prominent black clergy sent President Biden a very simple and direct message, a full-page ad in the New York Times that calls for a ceasefire and immediate de-escalation 
including the return of all hostages held by Hamas. Joining me now are two of the faith leaders calling for a ceasefire, the Reverend Mark Thompson, host of the Make It Plain podcast, and the Reverend Leah Daughtry, presiding prelate of the House of the Lord Churches and co-founder of Black Church Pack. Thank you both for being here. Reverend Daughtry, I do want to start with you. Um, you th- this letter's purpose, uh, please explain it. And please explain if you've had any response from the Biden administration. First, thank you, Joy, for having us this evening to talk about this critically important issue. Uh, We decided to do this letter because as people of faith, as people of conscience, and given the call on who we purport to serve, that is Creator God, we could not stand by and watch uh, the horror that is taking place in Gaza and in Israel as innocent lives, whether it is through Hamas and the killing and the taking of the hostages, or whether it is the tens of thousands now more than 10,000 women, children, families, whole families uh, that are being decimated by what we felt was a a disproportionate response by the nation of Israel. And so we wanted to be very clear and on the record as Christian faith leaders, we did not want anyone to have in doubt what our theology was saying about this matter, which is that the nations are called to conscience about how we are treating these people, how we are seeing their lives and how we value their lives. Because at the end of the day, if we decide that Palestinian lives are expendable, it says something about us and our moral authority and our moral center that we could diminish and demean God's creation. And that's why we wanted to be very public about this statement. We met with the Congressional Black Caucus and also with the White House to share with them uh, our feelings feelings and our thoughts before we published the letter. They were well aware. Uh, We gave them the heads up that this was coming. And we think that we will continue. We know that we will continue to press this issue, press this case until we see the ceasefire that we think is necessary on both sides. Um, And Reverend Mark, uh, my friend, um, you know, there's a, a sort of a disconnect, I think, for a lot of people when they see black faith leaders coming forward with a letter like this. Historically, the black church has been very aligned with Israel, very pro-Israel. Um, but there is a history um, of black folk who have sided with the Palestinian cause going back to the 1960s. Dr. King has spoken about um, what he felt Israel needed to do. He planned, you know, he canceled a march of black clergy in Israel right before the 1967 or just after the 1967 war broke out. Can you talk about some of the signatories here and the connections um, between African-American clergy and this issue? Well, thank you, Joy. God bless you as well. Pastor Michael McBride called us together to sign this very important letter. And we as black clergy not only have to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? But what would the Jesus in our modern times do? What what would MLK do? Uh, And he did speak out after the Six Days War. Um, Leah's father was with us when we marched on the U.S. mission to the U.N. last week, where Dr. King went inside in 1965 and in 1967 calling for a ceasefire in Vietnam. Now, one of the most important signatories on this letter of over 900 African-American clergy is the Reverend James Lawson who stood with Dr. King, who first went to India, was Dr. King's true comrade and ultimately his apostle in nonviolence. He led the Nashville sit-in movement and invited Dr. King to Memphis to the sanitation workers movement. And he spoke out all these types of violence are wrong. Some may ask, well, what about Hamas? What Hamas did was equally despicable, but what Hamas did, we didn't know about. 
it was a surprise. So if people knew what Hamas was trying to do, I'm sure all of us would have also decried and signed a letter in advance. But we knew it was announced what Israel was going to do when it came to Gaza. The majority of Gaza's population are young people. These are young people who are non-combatants. This violates all types of international laws and, and war, laws of war. And so that's why we are standing together. We cannot bear to see this go on. There has to be a better way. And as far as the Biden administration is concerned, this uh, takes me back, quite frankly, to 1980, when another conflict, not of a president's duty, actually caused him uh, to lose office. So we have to stand up as we hear more people in the black faith community, particularly more young people, more young people of color in particular, saying they're not going to vote because of the U.S. policy or lack thereof when it comes to the region. Both sides, all sides are human beings. They all should be saved. There must be a better answer and there must be redemption and there must be peace. Um, I, I just want to read you um, what um, Dr. King said, uh, and, he, and it's talking about King canceling this pilgrimage in 1967 after Israel captured the West Bank. During a phone call about the visit with his advisors, he said, I just think that if I go, the Arab world, and of course Africa and Asia for that matter, would interpret this as endorsing everything that Israel has done, and I do have questions of doubt. Um, I wonder if, uh, Reverend Daughtry, there was a thought about broadening um, who was on this list. This is black clergy. There are a lot of Jewish Americans who are also marching in favor of this cause. Was there a, a consideration at a certain point? There's going to be a big pro-Israel march, I should note, tomorrow um, in D.C. But was there a thought of expanding this list of people to include non uh, people who are not black clergy? You know, Joy, we we thought about that and we could have easily placed five or six New York Times ads with the people who were interested. We really yeah. thought that it was important for us as black Christian faith leaders. We're not Jewish. We're not Muslim. But also because of the long history that we have had with the Jewish community and their solidarity with us on uh, in the civil rights move. And of course, um, the Palestinians as well. It was important for us to say as a community, as faith leaders yeah. from across the nation, that we were that what our opinion is and that we were standing on the side of conscience and the side of peace. Uh, Reverend Mark Thompson and Reverend Leah Daughtry, thank you both very much. And up next, the story of justice in the United States military more than 100 years late. We'll be right back. Finally tonight, a long overdue reversal by the United States military. NBC's Priscilla Thompson has more. Honor restored to the 110 men of the all-black 24th Infantry's 3rd Battalion. More than a century after the Army convicted them of murder, mutiny, and assault, executing 19. Among them... Private First Class Thomas C. Hawkins. Jason Holt's uncle. What does today mean to you? Justice. And we don't know what he would have been, but that was all taken away. The regiment arrived in the Jim Crow South in July 1917. On August 23rd, a black corporal was reportedly shot at and beaten by police. The soldiers were told a mob was coming. Threats spurred a group of more than 100 black soldiers to seize weapons and leave camp, thinking that they were marching in their own self-defense. Melee ensued. 19 people died. Most were white. 
110 black soldiers eventually stood trial. All were convicted. Now with the Army setting aside these convictions. Today, the U.S. Army issued honorable discharges, making their survivors eligible for benefits. Never too late to correct an injustice. And that overturning these court-martials was the right thing to do. Your uncle wrote a letter to his parents. And he wrote, I am not guilty of the crime that I am accused of. He demonstrated courage. He demonstrated conviction. He demonstrated how he was sticking to certain principles. Priscilla Thompson, NBC News, Houston. NBC's Priscilla Thompson, thank you. And that is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.